So 1 Samuel chapter 20, I'll read verse 1 right through to the end. So 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Jonathan said to him, By no means shall you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, neither great nor small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide these things from me? It's not so. David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favour in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives, and you shall and your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever yourself desire, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I might hide in a field until the third day, At evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission for me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And if he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is angry, if he is very angry, be sure evil is determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into the covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, Far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me, or what is your father's answer? What if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both men went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow, or the third day, and indeed there is a good and there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to you to do good evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety, and the Lord will be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me kindness of the Lord where I still live, that I may not die. But you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow, because he loved him, and he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. 
And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone easel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad, saying, Go, find my arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, Look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way. For the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. And as for the matter which you and I have... Sorry. Then David hid in the field. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat that feast. Now the king sat on his seat, and as the other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose... And Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything at that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day and the second day of the month that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go, for our our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favour in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You, son of perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know you, that you have chosen the son of Jesse to be your own? Shame to to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore, send and bring him to me, and he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, because his father had threatened him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and had a little lad, and the little lad was with him. Then he said to the lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out again after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan, so Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, carry them into the city. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from the place towards the south and fell on his face to the ground 
and bowed down three times, and they kissed one another, and they wept together. So David, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between our descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Amen. So it's the Lord's word. Thank you, Chris. Would you join me as we pray once more before studying this word together? Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for this portion of your word that we have had read for us this morning. We pray that as we study it now that we might be moved by your spirit to a, a right and a true and as full an understanding of it as we might have. We pray that we would be grown in the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ as we do this and we pray this in his name. Amen. So this morning we've uh, titled the sermon, David's Difficulties. Uh, trying to get a bit of alliteration back, it's chopped off a bit recently. Uh, last week, David's deliverance, David's difficulties this week. And uh, as we continue with this story, we, we pick up right where we left off last week. Uh, last week, as we sort of spoke about a little bit in the kids' talk, but didn't go into these details, we saw an account of a, an amazing series of ways in which God saved his anointed David. Uh, there was a, a spear-throwing incident. There's a power-hungry, small-minded king who is uh, Saul, of course, uh, coming after David and through this series of absolutely incredible events, God has delivered David. Events that, inco- that included uh, God causing even the, uh, the, the messengers, the, the thugs that Saul sent to kill David, prophesying. Happened three times. And then Saul himself, with the desire to kill David, chased after him, and he prophesied too. Incredible work that God did. Now, last week, we deliberately focused on those points of deliverance for David. Uh, Not to dismiss the persecution that David suffered, but to emphasize the incredible things that God was doing. Now, there were a number of reasons why we did that. Uh, a number of reasons to emphasize God's deliverance of David. But one of the big ones which we got to at the end of our sermon last week is to remember that comfort, safety and direction are only found in God and the ordinances which God has given. When David had nowhere else to go, he fled to God. It was the right thing for David to do. As we remember... The deliverances that David experienced uh, from God uh, against Saul, uh, we should remember those things because David's difficulties are going to continue for quite some time yet. Now, this week we do look more at his difficulties, not in a way which undoes the deliverance that God has provided for him, but knowing that God can deliver from the most hostile of situations allows us to approach these difficulties today and through the next few chapters with comfort and confidence that God is with his servant, that God will deliver his servant, that there is safety with God for all of his people. Last week, the king, David's own father-in-law, tried to pin him to a wall with a spear. He has fled his home. 
This morning, as we pick up in 20 verse 1, there, there don't seem to be many safe places left for David to go. I'm sure we've all heard those stories that someone tells us and it's a bad story. And we get to a point going, how could it possibly get any worse? And then they keep telling us about the things that got worse from that point. In a lot of ways, this is a bit like that. Things go downhill more for David. There is incredible hostility shown towards him. But once more, there is hope for deliverance in the middle of all of that. There is hope for recovery. There is hope for deliverance. There is hope for salvation in the middle of all of those things going on. The circumstances that David faced are not ones that you'd wish on your worst enemies. But we have a wonderful example here and wonderful lessons to learn from God's word. Now today we are looking at these 42 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, I almost included the first nine verses of chapter 21, but I thought, no, we have more than enough to deal with here. So we're just sticking in this chapter today. But our three points to, to try and grapple with this text are, are firstly, uncertainty abounds. Secondly, a fun feast. And thirdly, we see peace in confusion. So to begin with, we see uncertainty abounding. And uh, chapter 20, verse 1, picks up right where we were last, last week, that same region of Nioth, the city of Nioth in Ramah. And where last week we finished there, this week we're leaving there. David flees from Nioth in Ramah because Saul is there trying to kill him. Yes, Saul has been moved to prophecy, but David's life is in danger. So he, he, he flees that region. He flees there in verse 1 this morning. He leaves that city and he goes to his mate Jonathan to ask him what's happening. As I said in the kids' talk, we sometimes face those circumstances where perhaps we feel betrayed by our friends. Remember last time we saw Jonathan speak to his father was in chapter 19. And uh, he went to his father Saul and he presented this defense of David and said, well, what sin has David done against you? You're grumpy at David for killing the Philistine, for killing Goliath. But when that happened at the time, you were really happy. You're just upset because the people are celebrating David is what he's basically saying to Saul. So last time we see Jonathan in this narrative, he's actually been able to talk Saul down. And Saul said to Jonathan, surely as the Lord lives, he that is David will not die. That's the last thing David heard from Jonathan as well on this matter. But then not long after that, his life's in danger again. Jonathan is close to Saul. Jonathan knows the counsel of Saul, presumably. Perhaps David comes to Jonathan with a, a sense of uncertainty, perhaps a sense of betrayal. We're not given insight as to how he feels, but he comes here seeking answers. He wants to know why these things are happening. Some commentators take a very dim view of David and say that he's a bit thick in coming to talk to Jonathan here. They say that David coming to talk to Jonathan here is just trying to figure out, did Saul really try and kill me? And it's quite obvious from a spear-throwing incident that Saul was really trying to kill him. Don't think we should look at David with a dim view here. David has had spears thrown at him from Saul before. And it calmed down. 
seems that David is coming to Jonathan both to ask him what's going on and to confirm whether the threat has passed, if it's safe for David to return to Saul's presence, or whether he's going to have to go on the run permanently, whether he's going to become a fugitive from the king and the king's soldiers. I think that's more what's going on here. He's coming to, to Jonathan trying to figure out what's happening. Almost if he's coming to Jonathan and saying, Mate, why didn't you tell me? I thought we were friends. Why didn't you tell me your dad was trying to kill me? That's the sort of thing friends would say to one another. That's a big thing. You don't forget to tell someone that. I thought we were bros. It's got that sort of vibe to it. And we see Jonathan's response in verse 2. He's a little bit confused. Like, no, Dad, Saul's not going to do something without telling me. If he's going to do something big, whether he's going to do something small, he's going to tell me first, are you sure you have the right end of the stick? Do you, are you sure you know what's actually happening here? David, take a breath, calm down. There's no logical reason why my father would hide this from me. But then we look at verse 3. And David says, well, I think Dad's actually trying to protect you here. So maybe there, there's some fatherly value to Saul. It's ambiguous. But... Jonathan, your dad knows that we're close. He doesn't want to grieve you, so he didn't tell you this, but but this is really happening. I am barely alive. There's just one step between me and death. Thugs have come to David's own house to kill him. Three lots of messengers with the purpose of killing David have been sent after him. Saul himself has come after him as well as Saul throwing a spear at David, as we've said a few times already. They came, these three thugs that came after me, they came to an entirely different region. See, David isn't exaggerating any of this when he says to Jonathan that, that there is just one step between him and death. And Jonathan, to his credit, believes David. He believes David and they begin to to formulate a plan to keep David alive. There's a sense of urgency to this plan because there's a, a new moon feast that's going to start the next day. But for us, this might all look a little bit strange to, to start off with. We don't have new moon feasts. And David talks about as if there's, there's almost this expectation that he's going to be present at this feast. Now, for, for us reading that, when I was reading that, I was sort of looking at this, wondering why this would be the case. Why would David go and put himself in the presence of Saul, who's trying to kill him? It, it, it doesn't make sense to us today that David would be close to Saul or even consider going to this party. It's like going to the party of a friend who's really grumpy at you. You, you, you don't do it. It's not polite to do that in our mind. But this is a, a courtly event. Yes, all of Israel would have uh, participated in this event once a month with the new moon. But what, what we see here is a courtly event about to take place. There is an expectation that David would be there as a member of Saul's court. And we see it's not just David who thinks that he's going to be expected there. Later on, we see that, that Saul himself is expecting David to be there. We see that with his, surely David's unclean. And then on the second day of the feast, asking Jonathan, why isn't David here? That there is an expectation that David would be there. There's an urgency to having to formulate a plan to protect David.
Now, despite that urgency, the author leaves us with a, a question mark about what's come up with here. There is deceit in this plant. Consider what we saw in chapter 19. How many times God delivered David from Saul's hand. How God caused even Saul to to take off his clothes and prophesy. God can do amazing, wondrous, mighty things. But here we have two men who who do trust God, but seemingly because of the, the time pressures placed on them, turn to deception and dishonesty. The author doesn't flesh it out for us. The author doesn't tell us his opinion as to whether this is right or wrong. But the author includes it for a reason. We are to ask ourselves whether this was appropriate. And to be honest with you, given what we've just seen of God, surely we're designed, we're being led by the author to think this wasn't necessary. But it does happen. happens because a feast is the next day. Now, what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 20 actually takes place over four different days. So day one is David and Jonathan talking in the field at the beginning here, or talking then going out into the field. Uh, Days two and three are the feast of the new moon. And then day four is at the very end, verses 35 to 42, where Jonathan goes and tells David what's happened at the feast. So it is spread out over this sort of four-day period, what we read here today. So it's the next day that this feast is going to take place. Certain members of the court, including David, are expected to be there. And this is why there is this urgency for the plan. But again, the dishonesty is a blight on this chapter from both David and Jonathan. But what we see here is that uncertainty abounds. There is uncertainty all around these characters in these narratives, these men who lived long ago. Jonathan, the prince, the the one who Saul still sees, we read later in this chapter today, is insistent would be the next king, had no idea that such a prominent figure as David in the life of Israel had an execution plan against him. Jonathan didn't know that. There's uncertainty regarding that. Go back to verse 1. David wants to know what his sin against Saul is. What have I done? Why is this happening? What has gone so badly wrong that these things are taking place? It's a, it's a time of uncertainty as we open up today. But in the midst of that, there is the formation of some certainty. David asks, what sin have I committed? Later on, he says, if I've sinned, Jonathan, I'd rather you killed me than you hand me over to your father. If I've done such a great sin as my life is being threatened because of it, just kill me. And Jonathan says, no, there's nothing. One chosen by the Lord is being persecuted. One chosen by the Lord is being attacked and harassed 
and living with uncertainty, at least in a physical regard, because of a man who is not close to the Lord whatsoever. The planning we see and the discussion we see from verses 1 through to verse 23 are important. They're needed. There is wisdom in this, although there are mistakes made within it. Now, as we do look at those verses, just one point just about the structure of what we read there. If you were to read this chapter, just verses 1 to 11, skip verses 12 to 17, and start again at verse 18 onwards, you would lose nothing of the flow of this narrative. We'd still see a lot of really important things take place. The, 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 the narrative would continue unhindered. They're planning for the fact-finding mission. Jonathan's about to go on to figure out how great the threat against David's life is would continue. The plan would be as it is otherwise. And some people say because of that, verses 12 to 17 are not important. But in uncertainty, the making of covenants between two men is incredibly important. Covenant vows sworn to one another here are incredibly amazing to see. As we consider the circumstances of David and Jonathan as they meet here, David is losing everything. He can't go to his home. He can't go to his father's house because Saul knows where he lives there. He has nothing to his name in many ways. Jonathan is the son of the king. Jonathan is still in favour with the king. David knows this. Jonathan knows this. David's referred to himself as Jonathan's servant three times leading up to these verses. Then in verse 16, Jonathan reverses those positions in the vow that he takes. In the contract that he forms with David, Jonathan reverses their positions. He takes the role of the person who has nothing. It's an unheard of thing to happen at that time. But once more, we should be encouraged by that. We could skip verses 12 to 17. And we won't say much more about it beyond this. I'd encourage you to read more about it because there's incredibly beautiful things here. But Jonathan reminds us that there is hopefulness in this chapter. David's humility and Jonathan's humility are wonderful to read of. Someone would give up their place of authority to help someone else and put themselves in a position of weakness. Might in fact remind you of something, hey? We continue with the narrative. Verse 18 through to 23 continues with the plan. There's uncertainty. There's a need to ascertain how great the threat against David is. Perhaps Saul has calmed down since the prophesying event. Perhaps he's not going to respond roughly when Jonathan explains why David isn't at the feast or gives an explanation, a wrong one, but an explanation of why David isn't at the feast. Perhaps things will calm down. There's a need for this to be present here. There's a need to discover what's taking place. And there's this covenantal agreement that underscores this. 
reminds us that not only is there their wisdom to much of what these guys do, not everything, but much of it, there is certainty in God. There is still, in the middle of all this incivility, all this uncertainty, the ability to trust God. There is not much else known by these two men at this point in time, but these covenants and the vows that they've taken relied upon God. As we saw at the end of last week, and it continues through here, he is still the surety that we have when everything else seems uncertain. God's covenant with his people provides a path for us in the middle of uncertainty. And then we get to what I've titled for the second point, a fun feast. Now, I've called this a fun feast because I wanted to continue with alliteration. And it's very tongue-in-cheek. It's not a particularly enjoyable feast as we see here. There's some uh, quite ugly characteristics on display here from Saul in particular. Now, verse 24 and 25 gives a bit of a picture about how this uh, feast would have looked every month. Now, the reason we, uh, we can say this is likely how it was laid out every month is in verse 25. Uh, now the king sat on his seat as at other times. If to say this is the, the regular occurrence, every time this new moon feast came around, this is the layout. Saul sat on his seat by the wall, Abner was there, Jonathan was there, and the one glaring omission from every other feast that would have happened like this is David is not there. Now this is a plan Jonathan and Saul, uh, Jonathan and David had made. It's no surprise to them, but at least to Saul and probably Abner as well and everyone else, why isn't David here? It is an omission within the text. There's an omission from the court. He's in the field, as David and Jonathan had agreed upon. Verse 26 reminds us that the hostility from Saul to David is continuing. One commentator says that while Saul has had the spirit of the Lord removed from him, Saul is still politically cunning. Look at what's told to us of his thoughts there. Saul's sitting at the feast. He sees that David's not there. Something has happened to him. Now we stop there, perhaps it's concern. Perhaps it's concern that David's injured himself. Perhaps a cart rolled over on the way. Perhaps he needs help. But then we see that's really not the case at all. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. He has not followed what God has commanded of his people to follow to be able to be clean enough to come to this celebration feast where there was a sacrifice offered. David has botched up. Politically, this is a win for Saul if this is the case. Surely he is unclean. There's almost a gleefulness to this. He, he's winning. David's on the run. David's not there. And maybe David's even unclean. For Saul, this is about as good as it's getting at this point in time. He's disappointed he can't kill David. But if he can't kill him, this is the next best thing. He's unclean. If he's unclean, no Israelite will want to follow him. He is a, a, a tainted man in the eyes of the people if this is the case. He is not worth associating with. He is not worth following. The threat to my throne is diminishing is basically what Saul is saying here. 
He has had the spirit of God removed from him, but we see his political cunning continue. So that happened on the first day of the feast. And then on the the second day of the feast, while we see that ugly insight into where Saul's heart was, things really get unfun on the second day. We see a, a conversational sequence take place here that Pause there. It's got the word interesting written here. I find it interesting. You might or might not, but I find this interesting. What we see here is Saul asks a question. Jonathan responds and Saul gets angry. But then the sequence continues. Jonathan asks a question. Saul gives something of a response and Jonathan gets angry. There's a reverse order of events that takes place here. It happens and then it mirrors itself the other way. Saul's question begins in verse 27. It's basically, where's David? Why isn't he here? This is the second day of the feast. I, as the king, the one presiding over this feast, haven't heard a legitimate excuse as to why David isn't here. Jonathan, why is David not here? And Jonathan responds with this, Dishonesty that he and David have come up with. Again, it's not great. Jonathan's response is one that angers Saul. Saul just explodes into anger. Now, if what he had in his heart was ugly before, this is just as ugly, just as horrific what Saul goes on to say. Now, we haven't seen... Saul's wife and Jonathan's mother in 1 Samuel. In many ways, this is an introduction to her through Saul's very angry and very unkind words. Verse 30. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your, of your mother's nakedness? That is a horrific thing to say. We have not seen her in this narrative and Saul does not speak kindly of her as an introduction to her in this narrative. And we can assume it's probably not right because Saul's speaking out of anger here. But these are terrible things to say about anyone. And what Saul says here comes incredibly close to disowning any responsibility he has for Jonathan as his father and basically blames everything Jonathan does on his mother and takes steps away from anything going on here. But it's not just that he removes himself as a person responsible for for Jonathan and blaming Jonathan entirely on his mother, he goes so far as to basically say, Jonathan, it would have been better if you had not been conceived, let alone born. Why did he say that? Because David wasn't at the feast. Because he couldn't kill David. What sort of father... 
is prompted to such anger to his son and to his wife over such an event. This is not a fun feast. We've seen the first sequence of events take place. Saul asks a question. Jonathan responds. Saul gets angry. But then we see the inverse of that take place. Jonathan asks a question. Jonathan's question is, basically, why should he be killed? What has he done wrong? Go back to the start of chapter 19. David said something, or Jonathan said something very similar to Saul about David then. What sin has he committed against you? And at that point in time, Saul realized, there's nothing. I'm not going to kill him. But, but now there's not even that recognition here. What had worked in chapter 19 doesn't work now. If anything, it seems to be provocation to Saul. Where Jonathan gave a verbal, albeit dishonest, response, Saul's response to Jonathan's question is nonverbal. He throws a spear at his own son. I mean, there's a, probably needs to talk to someone. It's not a good pattern of behavior, is it? Someone upsets me, I throw a spear at them. But his own son. He throws a spear at his son. And this time Jonathan becomes angry. Jonathan became angry. And he didn't eat any food at this feast. We give an insight here as to why Jonathan became angry as well. And not just because his father had thrown a spear at him. Go back to the start of the chapter. If Saul responded roughly, and that would be a sign that he had every intention of killing David. Saul responded roughly. There is confirmation here that Saul's intended desire is to kill David. Jonathan undoubtedly grieved over the fact that his own father tried to kill him with a spear. But we are shown here in Scripture. We are shown here in Scripture that Jonathan's greatest grief was that his father had treated him, that is David, shamefully. He's not angry because of how he's been treated, but because a faithful servant of God a man who has been nothing but obedient to his father, who has served Saul even though he was anointed king, which Jonathan likely didn't know yet though, has been so mistreated. This new moon feast was meant to be one of joy. It was meant to be one of celebration. It was meant to be a reminder of the work that God had done. But at verse 34, the feast is finished. The second day of the feast is done. We're not really left with a sense of joyfulness, are we? We're not really left at thankfulness for the offering that was sacrificed. We're left with almost a sense of hopelessness, of how can things get better from here? 
how can things improve? Well, I hate to ruin the ending of the sermon before you've even got to the third point. We don't see resolution to this today. This chapter doesn't provide full resolution, but it does provide some measure of comfort. There is a grief that clings to this feast. There is a grief compounded by what we are yet to see happen between David and Jonathan and their incredibly sad passing. But despite all of that, as we see in our third point now, we do see peace in confusion. Now, I've called it peace in confusion. It's not that there is peace in the state of being confused, but there is peace in the middle of this confusion. So as we started with uncertainty for David, we end today with confusion. Things have gone to custard. The king has tried to spear his own son. The king will not even listen to to simple questions of, what's David actually done wrong? It's a terrible situation. It's a terrible situation that results in grief, in loss, and just, where is all this going? There's confusion about where this narrative is going. We've seen so many high points, so many wonderful things, but right now it just seems as if it's all dark and gloomy. So we finished looking at verses 35 to 42, which take place on the fourth day that this chapter's cover, chapter covers, which is the day after the new moon feast. Jonathan goes out to the field that David is hiding in. He, he takes his bow and some arrows as if he's going to practice archery. Now, if you're going to do archery, don't do what Jonathan does here. He sends the kid running and then shoots his arrows over the kid. That's not safe, don't do that. But there's less workplace health and safety stuff, I'm assuming, back then. So there's what what happened. Anyway, so Jonathan gets his bow, he gets his arrows, and he goes out into the field. And he is there to pretend to shoot shoot at a target. So he fires off three arrows beyond the lad who's with him to go and get them. The sign, the signal that he and David had come up with, of course, and there was a need for a signal. Saul knew that Jonathan and David were close. They couldn't just go immediately to a face-to-face meeting. There is every likelihood that Jonathan had been followed by Saul's servants wanting to kill David. There was wisdom in this signal. But the signal was that if the arrows went beyond the lad, then David was not safe, that David would have to leave. But if they fell short of the lad, then David was safe, that Saul wasn't angry with him. Now, we don't know whether David could see this happening. We don't know whether David had a line of sight to the arrows being shot over the lad's head, but he certainly heard the words of Jonathan, and you can just imagine the grief. The arrows went beyond. David, you're not safe. David, you have to leave. The king is trying to kill you. You have to flee for your life. There is no safety for you here. Now the subterfuge behind their meeting, it does work. sort of feel a little bit sorry for the lad, not only having arrows shot over his head, but three arrows are shot. He goes off, chases the arrows, picks them up, comes back to Jonathan, then has to carry the bow and arrows back to the city. So, What was I here for? 
And maybe he enjoys hanging out with the prince. Maybe that's something he does like. But he'd probably think, well, what was the point of this morning? See, the, the subterfuge works. The lad doesn't know. Nobody is aware other than David and Jonathan that the coast is clear and they can now meet. And they meet in person once more. And what a sad scene to picture, isn't it? These two loyal warriors of God. These two men who have formed a friendship with one another that is incredibly close. Not being able to enjoy the fellowship that they enjoy with one another because of the sinful, hate-filled actions of another. It's a grievous separation we see between these two. And we, we do note the words in here that David wept more than Jonathan. Now, that's not to say that David was more sad than Jonathan. But it's perhaps, not only what, it is actually what happened, but it's also perhaps reflective of the fact that David realises that he's giving up more than even Jonathan is giving up in this. That this separation will be harder for David than it will be for Jonathan because where Jonathan can go back to his home, as painful and as awkward as that would be, he still has a home. David is now on the run. Now, a few weeks ago, when we see the the forging of the friendship between David and Jonathan, I did say that some people uh, say that this relationship between these two guys was more than just friends. It says here they kiss one another. Uh, But we need to remember we live in a different culture. We cannot superimpose our sinful worldly views onto this. We know those words in the New Testament, greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm sorry, but I'm not kissing any of the guys here. Actually, I'm not sorry. I'm just not kissing any of the guys here. What happens here was an affectionate sign of friendship, nothing else. We cannot read into this. We cannot make a perversion of what is actually a wonderful friendship. Now, you might be wondering, I said this point is titled Peace and Confusion. Where is the peace? Look at what Jonathan says to David in verse 42. Go in peace. Go in peace. David, you don't have a home anymore. David, the king wants to kill you. David, you can't see your family anymore. David, there's nowhere safe for you but go in peace. Perhaps we read it like that. Disingenuous statement. This is a statement said because it's the, the polite thing to say, the right thing to say. But I strongly believe that this going peace is a genuine statement. We see Jonathan refer back to the covenant that they'd made with one another of peace between their descendants. Now it might be a head scratcher as to how this is possible, but I would suggest that we actually know exactly how this is possible. Biblical peace. Darrell Davis reminds us that biblical peace is not often in tranquil settings. It's not in having things all go our way. It's not in having everybody love us and nobody despise us. We are sometimes blessed with that sort of peace, where people do appreciate the stand we take as Christians where people do value us for what we believe, but often that is not the case. 
There is often confusion. Why does this person mistreat me like this? All I've done to offend them is love God. All David has done to offend Saul is be faithful to God. Biblical peace is more often than not a rightness with God in the middle of confusion. Consider Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says that Christians enjoy peace. Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says that Christians endure affliction. Romans 5.1, Christians enjoy peace. Romans 5.3, just two verses later, Christians endure affliction. Just like David, we are not often called to live lives of, of general tranquility. We know that the world cannot stand those who love God as David, Jonathan and, and countless others have done. We, we often live in the midst of confusion because of persecution, because of difficulties inflicted upon us because of those who, who don't love God. Saul's actions just don't make sense. He is trying to kill the guy who won a battle for Israel. He is trying to kill his wisest servant. He is trying to kill his most successful commander at a time when the Philistines are attacking He is trying to kill the man who married his daughter with his blessing. He is trying to kill his son's best friend. None of what Saul does makes any sense. What Saul does just leaves us with this sense of confusion. Why is this happening? It doesn't make sense. Let alone the fact that when the tormenting spirit from God came upon Saul, yes, Saul has those things around him that don't make any sense of this, But when the tormenting spirit from God came upon him, Saul played the harp and was the only person who calmed him down. The only person who had soothed him. David alone had ministered to him in such a way that Saul had personally experienced the blessing of David's ministry. Again, it's confusion. But even with all of that, Jonathan is 100% correct to say to David, go in peace. In our lives, we might face similar sorts of confusion too. Perhaps confusion states it too mildly. Perhaps we are living with circumstances that just confound us. Why would this happen? Perhaps we are living with Injuries or, or illnesses that we just can't shake. I've only had a dodgy knee. Well, it's been dodgy for a while. It's only ramped up since August last year. It hasn't even been a year and I'm sick of it. It, it weighs on me. What, why would this happen? We know the frustrations of those things. Perhaps in other areas of life, perhaps there's always friction at home no matter what we do to try and smooth things over there's always somebody grumpy someone upset and we just can't make sense of it perhaps we keep being overlooked for promotions perhaps our co-workers and friends and neighbours continue to take digs at us for our faith 
Perhaps we have people who openly attack us for our faith. That might not sound like an encouraging thing to say. And the reality is we face difficulties just as David did. But no matter what we might face, there is peace with God. Luke 1 records the message the angels brought declaring the reason Jesus came, the reason he was born, was to bring a lasting peace on earth between, the, uh, between God and men, those with whom God is well pleased. There is a lasting, there is an eternal peace that we can have with God even when everything else has gone to custard. We may not experience that peace between all people on earth just yet. For that to properly happen, we wait for the second coming of Christ, don't we? But there is still peace for the Christian. There is still peace with God. We should be encouraged to look for it. We very nearly read, as I said before, the first nine verses of chapter 21. Look at that when you go home from here. See where David went. Once more, it's back to God. Go to him. Look to him. Read his word. Find those promises of peace that he gives us, even when everything else is confusing. Be encouraged by how he is growing and shaping and, uh, and shepherding and protecting you in your walk with him. And while it can be hard to see growth in ourselves, look at the church around you. Look at your brothers and sisters in the church and see the work that God is doing in their lives and be encouraged that he is still with us, that he still protects us, that he still guides us, that he has given us peace forever. You see, this is how we and this is how David was going to live in the midst of confusion. Not with his own strength. He was capable. He was an incredibly capable young man, but he was not going to live by his own strength, by his own abilities. He, like us, are to live trusting in God's strength, leaning on the everlasting peace that he has won for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this portion of your word. There is much in here that is heavy. There is much in here that could perhaps leave us feeling somewhat despondent. Yet we thank you for that beautiful nugget of encouragement we find right at the end there. That we can go in peace because you are with us. You are our God. You are our rock. You are our salvation. You are our deliverance in all things. May we trust you love you, and turn to you and you alone when we face times of difficulty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider where that eternal peace was won for us, we're going to sing our final song this morning from praise 453. That's 453. When I survey the wondrous cross. Let's stand and sing together.